But for this morning, we're in Job, chapter 42. By the time we get to this point in the book of Job, we want everything wrapped up in a, in a nice, neat little package. We kind of want the story to end with, and Job lived happily ever after. You see, that's what I want. Uh, I will confess to you, I am somewhat of a, of a hopeless romantic. I don't like stories where the, there are loose ends. I want everything tied up. I, I want the story to take place where, depending on the situation, the, the guy gets the girl or the girl gets the guy and they do live happily ever after. I want the story to end with a nice ending. I want all of the loose ends tied up. And, and, and so I get to this point in Job and there are some loose ends tied up, but they're not perfectly tied up. And, and, and in fact, doing another careful and slow read through this chapter that finishes the poetic section of Job and goes back to prose. It's just basically storytelling. It's called the epilogue, the conclusion. I was surprised. You see, I had been wrestling with the ending. I had been wrestling with how do I wrap up this sermon series? And I was trying to figure out, how does this stuff help us? I mean, you know, uh, just a cursory read. It's like, how does this, everything, Job doubled up. He doubled up on everything. He only got 10 kids back, but he doubled up on everything else. How does that help me? How does that help me when I'm struggling? I don't get double. I don't get doubled up on stuff. I, I, how does that help me? And I kept reading this chapter and wrestling with it and reading and researching and thinking. And all of a sudden in my research, I was pointed to, to one word, a word I hadn't thought about, a word I hadn't understood. And, and it's not mentioned in the chapter, but it's a, it's a concept. It's a concept that we know of God. It's a concept that we celebrate. And I began to realize it's here. It's here in this chapter. And in a, in a long summary sentence, I wrote this. What Job learned and what we can learn is the familiar, simple, profound reality of the fact that God is a God of grace, even in the middle of great struggles. I hadn't seen grace in the book of Job at any point until I got to chapter 42. Oh, I've talked a lot to you about Job as a man. It's about our faith. It's about our faith in the midst of trials. It's about trusting God in the midst of trials. And all of a sudden it hit me what Job learned and what I can learn and what I hope you can learn is the familiar, simple, profound reality of the fact that God is a God of grace, even in the middle of great struggles. We're going to discover God's grace in Job 42. And I can honestly tell you, I did not see that coming. We just celebrated communion that reminds us in 
profound ways of God's grace. Some of us can go directly to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and talk about that we are saved by faith, by, by grace and faith. For by grace are you saved by faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. If you opened your email this week and you listened to the playlist, then you will recall that the very final song that I included on that playlist was a song by Matt Redman, and it's entitled, Your Grace Finds Me. Part of the lyrics are this. It's there on the mountaintop. There in the everyday and the mundane. There in the sorrow and the dancing. Your great grace. Oh, such great grace. And the chorus, from the creation to the cross. There from the cross into eternity, your grace finds me. Yes, your grace finds me. God's grace found Job. And as we work through this passage today, I pray that God's grace will find you. Let me, uh, let me read chapter 42, and then we'll delve into it more deeply. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima. The second, Keziah. The third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land. Were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, 
and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man and full of years. The storm of the presence of God dies down. God has finished speaking. Job is right where he needs to be, and he speaks again. We looked at that a little bit last week, but we need to look at those words again. The Job in chapter 42 is a different Job than the Job we found in chapters 1, 2, and 3 and before. This is a different Job than the one who finished his words in chapter 31, and those words had ringing in them the, the, the idea of him signing his defense and asking God to sign his affidavit against him. It's a different Job than Job 31. And what I find very interesting is the fact that in all of this book, God didn't have to show up. God didn't have to respond. In his grace, God chose to step in and God chose to respond. And in that choice, God chose to reveal in a striking way his eternal nature. He chose to reveal his might. He chose to reveal his authority. And when we see God for who he really is, when we see God for the powerful being he really is, when we see God and take a step back and see him in all of his glory and his eternity, we realize that anything he gives us, anything that we have, any ability, any, any knowledge, anything we have, we realize it's all grace. And we should be brought to humility. And that's the first lesson this morning. Simply stated, God's grace humbles us, and it should. The initial thrust of Job's words here in verses 1 to 3 are in contrast uh, that Job acknowledges. Job acknowledges that God can do all things in other words, Job is saying, I know you are El Shaddai. I know you are God Almighty. I know that you can do all things. And I realize because of how great you are, I spoke out of turn. I realize my demands coming out of my struggles and my pain, but I, they were disrespectful. He realizes his thinking that maybe he had a right to stand up to God in a courtroom and to take him on and to debate him was absolutely foolish. And Job begins to realize that while, and God says this, while he didn't sin against God by cursing God, he began to drift into a smug self-righteousness that believed, I don't deserve this because of who I am. And now he is humbled. In his grace, God humbles us. You see, grace is not grace if it's deserved. It's only grace if it's not deserved. 
And Job's humility, seeing God for who he is, seeing Job for who he is, led him to repentance. He's not condemned. In fact, he's the one that God says, I want you to be the intermediary. I want you to be the intercessor. But Job realizes how close he came to offending God, and he repents of that. He's ashamed of his attempts to bring God down to his level, and he repents of that. And it's interesting, the word that is translated repent here in in verse 4 is a a very interesting word. On the one hand, it has the understanding and the meaning that we've come to know. It's that idea of changing one's mind and therefore changing one's direction. And yet, the particular word that's used here also has a, a secondary meaning of being comforted or consoled. It would be as if Job were saying this, I am sorry for what I said. I will not say that again. But at the same time, I am comforted that you, God of grace, are still here and still with me and haven't turned your back on me. Uh, Grace should humble us. I know I'm humbled by the fact that even when I mess up big time, even when sometimes I doubt God's love and care for me. Even when I strike out on my own and think my path is the better path and and don't consult God but just do what I think I'm going to do and what I think is best and kind of ask God to bless it as I do it. Even when I do that, in His grace, God gently reminds me that He will never leave me nor forsake me. He gently reminds me that when I am faithless, he remains faithful. That's the humbling reality of grace. Now, don't don't hear me saying today that God will not hold me accountable for my failures or won't hold you accountable for your failures. He does. But hear me say this. God is fully aware of my struggles. God is fully aware of your struggles. He's aware of our failures. And he balances his accountability with his grace. That's why we read passages like in Psalm 103 that says he has compassion on us. And he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but removes them as far as the east is from the west. That's why we're reminded in 1 John 1.9 that when we confess our sins, when we agree with God that we have sinned, in other words, he forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And that is the problem with Job's friends in the book of Job is they don't see a God of forgiveness or cleansing. They see a God who, when you sin, he punishes you and there is no middle ground. They don't see him as a God of goodness. They don't see him as a God of kindness. He is only a God of retribution. He is only a God of justice in the way they define it. And God does something. In verses 7 through 9, God reveals his grace in forgiveness. Look at these verses again. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you. You know, if you get called out in Scripture, you don't want the next word to be God saying, I am angry with you. 
The writer of the Hebrews says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the angry God. I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. There's our concept of grace again. You have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. Twice God has said that. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite didn't wait. (laughs) You know, they didn't go, well, maybe tomorrow. No, they did. (laughs) They did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. They didn't speak truth about God. God calls them out. Very carefully, though, there's something else here, something that stands out that, again, I had not ever seen before. Four times in these verses, God references Job as his servant. My servant Job. Time and again, my servant Job. And, and, and God sees Job as a suffering servant. Notice that the suffering servant, Job, becomes the one through whom God accepts the sacrifices. In other words, Job intercedes for his friends. And Job sacrifices for his friends And God accepts Job's prayer. Now, I don't want to paint a picture that may not be there, but I think we get a glimpse. And if you've been with us on Thursday nights for the past uh, 16 weeks, eight uh, weeks in the fall and then eight weeks here in this winter and spring, we've been looking at those word pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. And this is a nod to messianic truth. A British scholar and pastor named David Atkinson summarized the point much better than I could when he writes, the servant stands in the place of the people before God, bringing a sacrifice of atonement, consecration, and offering, and praying for God's mercy and grace. Once again, the book of Job is pointing beyond itself to the mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as an offering for our sins and now ever lives to make intercession for us. We have this word picture, may not have been fully understood by the one who ever wrote it first, but we can see it in the whole compendium of Scripture and realize, oh, wow. What an amazing word picture. What a glimpse of God's greater truth. And so the Lord accepts Job's prayer. Job's friends are forgiven. Job forgives his friends. But there's another thing that happens. And it's in the last few verses here. God reveals his grace 
and restoration. God's grace humbles us. God's grace, God reveals his grace in forgiveness. And God reveals his grace in restoration. Notice it's after Job prays for his friends. So imagine for a minute. We don't know. In fact, my wife and I had this discussion because I said, I, I really don't know how long it is between Job 1 and Job 42. Is it years? Is it months? Is it days? Is it weeks? We're never told how long it is between Job 1 and Job 42. Job's physical being has been taken through the ringer. You remember those chapters, and at the end of chapter 31, he talks about the, the color of his flesh being dark or being blackened, and, and he just had pain all the time and, and, and all of that. And so we don't know when he was healed. I believe, we don't, and she goes, well, it would take a long time. No, not if God does the healing. It would be instantaneous. But maybe it was this broken Ashen covered because he'd been sitting in the, in the ash heap and, and he had sackcloth and ashes. Maybe it was this broken man with boils on his skin, just bent over because of pain that brought the sacrifice to God. And, and what a word picture of him brokenness bringing the sacrifices to God. And then it says, after he prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. After Job prays for his friends, God restores his stature in the community. And don't hear this and don't read back into this some kind of health and wealth concept that, you know, if you go through suffering, God's just going to give you all kinds of more. God reveals his blessings in different ways to different people at different times. In the time and in the culture in which Job lived, God's blessing was seen in terms of livestock and family. And so the general population would have believed, as Job's friends did, that somehow Job had sinned against God and was being punished, and now he had maybe made it right with God, and, and so now his punishment has been lifted. And... The reality is we know the truth, and sometimes the lessons we learn, they're not going to be fully understood by others. But Job's honor is restored. I want to show you three quick ways that his honor is restored. God reveals his grace and restoration. First, it was his, Job is restored in honor, verses 10 to 12. He restored his fortunes. And verse 11, all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They had a potluck. They, they just had this great big potluck. Everybody brought food and they got together. Job is a man of honor again. His honor is restored. He, his, his place at the city gate is restored. His honor as a person is restored. And, and by coming, and, and, and they came and they brought him gifts, uh, a piece of silver, uh, more literally translated, it'd be like a, a bar, a, it's literally a unit of silver. It'd be like a bar of silver and a gold ring. These, these were ways to say, you know, to, to just kind of, in a sense, it was like a free will offering. You know, it's like, hey, we want to build you back up. You've lost everything. We want to help you get back on your feet. It was a way to honor him. It's, it's foreign to us. 
You know, if I show up at your house with a, uh, because you're not feeling good, and I, I bring a, a meal, maybe some smoked ribs and, uh, and, and, and uh, a piece of silver and a gold earring, you're going to go, what am I going to do with these? Do you know, I've got to go down, I've got to get this analyzed and assessed and find out what it's worth and find out who will buy it. You know, we'll just take the ribs, you keep the silver and the gold. I don't know what to do with that. But Job knew exactly what to do with that, and there's a sense in which he was honored. And I would suggest if verses 1 through 4 of this passage have any impact on Job's life, he's a more humble man than he was before. And he realizes something as all of this honor is coming back to him. He realizes something that you and I need to realize. Nothing we have in this life is permanent. It can be gone in a minute. I actually thought of that the other day as I was pulling clothes out of the dryer. You see, if you're really going to take care of your, your dryer, when you pull clothes out of the dryer, you put them in the clothes basket to take them upstairs to fold them, you better pull the screen out and get all the lint. Do you know what that lint is a reminder of? Those clothes are wearing out. They're not permanent. If you have kids, especially if you have young boys, you know that because you're forever replacing jeans or pants with holes in the knees. They're not permanent. Everything wears out. Everything gets broken. Nothing in life is permanent. Everything we have can be gone in a minute, and Job realize that so as his honor is restored so is his understanding of his depth of dependency upon God we don't know how long it took we just know what happened his everything was restored his honor was restored but Job's relationship was restored look at verses 13 and 14 uh, I'll pick up verse 12 here. That's all his livestock was restored. Again, you don't know how long it took, but it took a while. In verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. We'll just stop there. There is no indication throughout the entire book of Job that he lost his wife. We have no indication throughout the entire book of Job that he took on a handmaiden, we only have the indication that he had 10 more children. Which, if you take the textual evidence here to be what it is, that means his wife was an extremely strong and healthy woman who ultimately gave birth to 20 children. But what I glean from this is his relationship with his wife was restored. If God would forgive give his friends who went on and on and on and on and on and on saying stuff that wasn't right about God, why would God not forgive a wife who in her grief and agony and pain and struggle in watching her husband suffer made one statement about just let go, Job, just let go. I can't stand this anymore. Just curse God and die. Let go. I believe 
his relationship with his wife was restored because God forgave her and so did Job. And what's very, very interesting here is then the description. Verse 14, or verse 12, he had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second, Keziah, the third, Karen Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. It is very significant, and the ancient reader would have read this and gone, What? He doesn't mention the names of his sons, but only the names of his daughters. Typically, daughters were left out of genealogies. Typically, daughters were left out of the list. He mentions his daughters. And not only did he mention them, notice this. Most of us have just skimmed right by it. I will tell you, most of the commentators skim right by it. I think it's hugely significant. Their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. If you live in the ancient world, mind is blown. In, let's just put it this way, folks. Job was progressive. He was a progressive. As a humble man who has seen the grace of God in living color, he saw the value of his daughters as gifts from God in a culture that did not value them. He saw the value of his daughters as gifts of God that he had been blessed with. And in his humility and awareness of the depth of God's grace, Job realizes that God's norms are greater than cultural norms. And so he does what no other person had done except for one other place in the Old Testament where the man did not have uh, sons and asked for uh, his daughters to get an inheritance. But here, Job elevates his daughters. And says, you know what? You're as important to me as my sons. You're important to my legacy as my sons. And so I am giving you an inheritance. Huge stuff. Job, who saw God's grace, became a man of God's grace. Job, who saw God's grace, treated his daughters with grace in a culture that said, all they're good for is fixing food and having babies. And he said, oh no. They are valuable. They're inheritance. They, they are heirs. They are, they're joint heirs with their sons. And we finish with these words in verses 16 and 17. After this, Job lived 140 years. More. He, he lived 140 years more. And he got to see his children grow. And get married. And he got to see his grandchildren. And his great-grandchildren. And possibly his great-great-grandchildren. Job got to experience God's grace daily. The text uses a familiar term in closing out Job's life. And so Job died. An old man and full of years. 
Those are words that are used of Abraham in Genesis 25.8. Words used of Isaac in Genesis 35.29. An old man and full of years. Uh, a long life was an ancient indicator of one who had lived a righteous life. So the story uses all the markers available to the culture to remind us that Job was and continued to be a good and righteous man. Now you may wonder after all of this, why, why do we need this information? Why do we need to know that he got restored and it was like a country and western song played backwards? He got his sheep back, he got his dogs back, he got everything back. Why do we need to know that? I think a couple of things. It's a reminder that we each need God's grace in the lives of those who follow him. is not something out there, far away, in the future. Oh, one day we'll experience God's grace. We need to be reminded that God's grace is not something just reserved for the afterlife. God's grace is that which we can experience here and now in everyday life and living. And if I experience God's grace, I need to be a grace giver. And that helps me a little bit with the, the whole why question of Job. Why? You know, remember, God never tells Job why. We have no indication that God told Job, okay, let me, let me tell you what happened. One day, I was sitting there, and here comes the accuser, and I decided to put you through. God never, we don't get that. I can't fully explain or understand why God used tragedy and suffering and bad, bad advice and misunderstanding and pain and loss. I don't know how he used it to reveal his grace. I know he did. But then I was thinking about that and I remembered the Apostle Paul's words. See, in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells the, the, the Corinthian church that, that he was inflicted. We don't know what it was. He was inflicted with a thorn in the flesh. He calls it a messenger from Satan, which, by the way, sidelight, don't go pray for a thorn of flesh if Paul called it a messenger from Satan. Just don't, don't do that. But Paul was inflicted with this. And he says he pleaded. He begged God three times, just take it away. And the response was, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, Job learned, and hopefully you and I have learned, that we can trust God even when nothing makes sense. And know that he's still there. And as the song says, his grace finds us. You know, we're each going to find times in our lives when circumstances or the clear direction of God just don't make sense at the moment. We can clearly see that we have made the best choices with the information we had, and yet the results just don't add up. And I can truly get how hard that is to swallow. And sometimes God will let you see the why. And other times, God is going to give you the strength to see him without knowing the why. But all of the time, God remains faithful. He remains faithful to give you and me what we need in the moment, to hold on to him, to trust him, to give us the strength for 
one more step, one more hour, one more day. And that's the sufficiency of his grace for the present. You see, what Job learned and what we can learn is the familiar, simple, profound reality of the fact that God is a God of grace, even in the middle of great struggles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this book of Job. Thank you for the things that we learn from it. Thank you for the way that it has both challenged and encouraged us in so many different avenues. Different ones of us have been, well, we've been brought to see you in a new light through this book. I pray, Lord, that the lessons that we've learned will not be that in a past tense, but they will be more as in a continual sense. That we will take the foundation and that we'll continue to learn. That we will be reminded that you are faithful. That we will be reminded that you are a God of grace. That we will be reminded that you give us what we need each day for that day. As the psalmist says, it's your portion that you give us. In the New Testament, Jesus called it our daily bread. And may we learn every day to depend on you for everything else we have is temporary, but you are eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.